0: Welcome to episode 477 of the Cyberlaw Podcast. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and we're about to express views not reflecting the opinions of our institutions, our clients, friends, family, or pets. Joining me for the news roundup, we've got a great panel, very substantive. Justin Sherman, who's a senior fellow at Duke and the founder of Global Cyber Strategies. Jeffrey Atik, who is a professor of law at Loyola Marymount School of Law and a co-principal investigator for the Quantum Law Research Project at Lund University. Jim Dempsey, who does policy at Stanford and law at Berkeley, right? Yes. Okay. All right. And Tyler Evans, who does government contracts law here at StepTo. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host of today's program. Uh, We've got a bunch of scattershot stories. The one that got the front page of the New York Times, maybe deserved it, maybe it didn't, was a story about Bitcoin miners from China showing up in the United States right next to pretty sensitive facilities, Air Force bases, Microsoft, which reported on this, thought it was really sensitive that they were near one of their data centers. Jeffrey, uh, what's going on here?
1: Well, if you didn't like Bitcoin before, here's another reason. And this article (laughs) does, in fact, lead with these new national security concerns, at least alleged by Microsoft and picked up by the New York Times, due to the proximity of a Chinese-owned Bitcoin mining facility to sensitive facilities, just as as you said, Stuart, the article then drifts off into concerns not about the proximity or using it as a kind of spying center, but rather the potential risks posed by Bitcoin mining facilities to the power grid. And so more is about the power grid and the threat to the power grid. Now, most people know that Bitcoin mining facilities are notoriously power hungry, And the story then leads us into the role of local power companies and because of the inadequacy of the national grid there are pockets of surplus power that one finds across the united states and if you're a local power company and you suddenly want to you know double the effective market in your locality attract a bitcoin mining facility and
0: suddenly you've got a huge customer and that seems to be the case so these and, and interestingly I mean a lot of the places that have surplus have surplus because they have variable supply. Right. And what's nice about a bitcoin miner if you attract one is they have variable demand. If you tell them I'm going to charge you more they will they will say well thanks I don't need it then. And so you can have these guys start consuming the power that you're otherwise going to waste until you tell them to stop doing it. it feels like a pretty good deal and the article says oh well they might try to bring down the grid by coordinating all of them coming online but you know my first thought is with most of these variable demand companies you can just turn them off. You say, "Sorry, we're not supplying you." Yeah, I had the I had the same question. You know, isn't there a technological fix here? Isn't there an off
1: switch? If there's a sudden, you know, coordinated surge from customers, don't power companies have the ability to shut them down? We certainly experience that in brownouts across the uh, country when the local power demand exceeds certain kinds of limits. But that's a technological you know, fix if it exists, yeah. or, or, or if it doesn't. These facilities are I- incredibly sensitive to pricing and spot pricing. So, there's every reason to think if the price mechanism is working appropriately, that they will go on and off according to the price signal that is ultimately controlled by the power vendor. So, yeah, there's some question about, you know, how authentic is this this second national security concern, the effect on the power grid. And then there is a vagueness that the reporter, you know, surfaces about who the owners are. I mean, they are Chinese nationals, but how close they are to the government, you know, given the ideology of Bitcoin and given China's policy with respect to Bitcoin activities within its own territory. One might suspect that these are, you know, if not critics of the government, they are certainly, you know, people. They're glad to be out from under their thumb, well, right? <laughs> well, we, we certainly see a lot of expression, right? The whole point yeah. that a Chinese national might want to mine Bitcoin is to have access to economic resources that are outside the control of the of the party, right? So, you know, it's not necessarily clear that these people might be on... Un- Randomly, the ones who are actually operating. And of course, there is no great transparency as to who they who they are, but for understandable reasons. They may be hiding themselves not because they're aligned with the government, they may be hiding themselves because they are, you know, trying to escape the control of the, the Chinese government. There's a special case in Texas that the that, that amusingly the article raises that Texas in its contrarian posture actually is encouraging the the vibrancy of the Bitcoin economy because of their distrust of U.S. central banking. And this then goes to the heart of the ideology of Bitcoin, this idea that there would be an alternate financial system with a digital foundation as opposed to our fiat currency that most...
0: Oh, yeah. We don't need to get into that. That'll happen whether there's mining in Montana or not. Well, the point, though, is that, you know,
1: Ultimately, the government can deny power, and so this this idea that you could have a wholly independent financial system outside of government control. This case, this little story kind of highlights the fact that the governments, to the extent that the government controls the power switch,
0: government has a very interesting lever. Yeah, you're right. The whole story is a weird mishmash, and you can't help thinking it got published because Finally, they just said, well, just throw it all in one pot and and serve it up. Why not? I will say, unlike most of the stories we do, this is one where there actually is regulatory authority. Uh, Microsoft reported the miners to CFIUS and said, hey, they're very close to a, a military base. Have they gone to CFIUS? So CFIUS could tell them, no, you can't do that. Right. And they could certainly demand that they answer questions about who they are and what their plans are. So I just suspect that. This may be the last we hear of this story and maybe that's good riddance. All right, let's talk about the Sacramento effect. We got lots of Sacramento effect stories. Uh, Jim Dempsey, uh, California's governor who seems to be running for president and trimming his vetoes and signatures of state legislature to what he thinks will play with a national audience, has decided to sign the DELETE Act into law. What does that mean? As a practical matter, and do you agree that this is good politics for him?
2: Well, let me uh, let me describe Stuart the bill itself, and it's great that we have Justin on because Justin has done a lot of the landmark work on data brokers. So, in terms of what it effect it will have, I'm, I'm going to have to heavily rely on Justin. But the basics of the bill are: in California, data brokers have for some time been required to register uh, initially with the state attorney general, 500 data brokers, over 500 data brokers are registered with the state of California, and they've been for some time required to honor, opt out, or delete requests from individuals, but you had to go to all 500 individually and figure out who they were, and did they have your data, what was their process, et cetera. This bill transfers the registration process to the California Privacy Protection Agency, And it says that the agency shall create a single verified delete request mechanism. A little bit like the FCC's do not call list. You put yourself on the list and the data brokers are required on a periodic basis to constantly check the list and see, have you, is is Jim Dempsey on it? And if so, all 500 of them are required to delete. It's also a little bit reminiscent in a way of the do not track signal, which California is also pursuing, the browser-based opt-out. All of these laws in a way are intended to take what is an existing privacy right and to make it easier for the individual to use and to, in essence, overcome the complexity of the ecosystem that has grown up, 500 data brokers registered in California. now. You know, I just looked at the list, and Justin can correct me, I looked at the list of 500. Google is not a data broker. It's not a registered data broker. They're a
0: first-person collector of data. They
2: ain't selling nothing of the data they have. They don't sell it. They use it. So one of the criticisms of the bill is that it will increase the power of the people actually, Facebook, Google, who actually have access to huge amounts of data on individuals. But it takes effect as of January 2026. So I think it's a big... A deal. I think it's a very interesting bill. There's also some transparency stuff there It'll be interesting. The data brokers are required to publish very specifically. Do they collect location information and some other things? That'll be useful as well to advocates trying to figure out who these, these companies are and what they do. But uh, in terms of will it be in fact as meaningful as it seems, I, I have to defer to Justin.
0: My bet is this is going to be a disaster for the industry, lots of consolidation, lots of people afraid of going out of business, and none of them able to compete with Amazon, Google, Facebook, maybe one or two others.
2: The fact is, I mean, as Justin has documented, we've got this incredibly complex and a little sketchy ecosystem of people collecting data and selling it, including selling it to governments, which is an issue. So I think this has, and by the way, credit reporting agencies are exempt from this, so I don't think the this will hurt anti-fraud efforts, uh, I don't think that argument really carries weight because the credit reporting agencies are still in business. Justin?
3: No, I I agree with everything Jim said. I think he captured it well, right, you know, to draw out, right, two of those main changes. One is he said, this is not changing the obligations placed on these third-party brokers. They already have to comply with an opt-out request if they get it. It's just streamlining the process by which consumers can, can file it. Which I think at that point, if you already have the legal right, is a completely reasonable thing to say, hey, you know, making a consumer click through 600 something separate web pages is just ridiculous. And so there's sort of a process point there. And the second one is, you know, related to the Google piece and Facebook piece. And I think that's, of course, an interesting question to ask, right? If you have, as you said, Stuart, companies like Google where the model is very much not sharing the data because we want to hoard the data and we want to sort of charge you as much money as we can to get access to services, right? That's of course why they're getting rid of of cookies. That's a separate uh, point. So I think that's a fair question to ask about access to data and if other companies are providing alternative means of accessing data. But I think at the same time, that's an argument that is trying to make privacy the solution to everything. We've of course seen this sometimes in Europe, right, where privacy law is seen as the solution to every possible problem we want to whack it with. Uh, And I think, especially, for instance, right, not being an expert even remotely in anything antitrust related, I think this is an interesting case of like, okay, there are privacy questions here, but if you're more concerned about monopoly power lack thereof or consolidation or this or that, that's not a reason to not do privacy regulation. That's sort of a separate, at least in my head, but probably a separate conversation to be had.
0: All right. I agree with most of that. Last question is, is this going to be good politics for Governor Newsom? And I would have thought it was, you know, everybody hates data brokers, so it's probably good bragging rights if he's running uh, in 2024. And the only way it turns bad for him is if, if it turns out the California state government can't actually organize the one-stop shop to get off the list. And he's he's... He's guaranteed against that by saying, oh, I don't actually have to get it done until 2026, so this is this is good politics.
2: Yeah, I think it's marginal, Stuart. I just don't know that for all my privacy advocacy work, I just don't know that privacy plays in certainly presidential level politics, that the kinds of issues that presidents win or lose on are much more emotional uh, even than privacy and much more sort
0: of- Could be- um, Could be, but I'm not saying this necessarily helps him in a general election, but it's good for the primary. He gets to say, people are talking about doing stuff at the federal level, and they've been talking for 20 years, and I just did it. Fair enough. Okay, Jeffrey, more Sacramento effect. Governor Newsom signed again, he signed it, a ban on social media aiding and abetting child abuse. That language is very familiar. Comes out of FOSTA, SESTA, and... I think that changes the debate, which has generally gone against the states trying to do stuff to prevent kids from uh, being abused online in social media. Uh, You think so? Well, you know, so it's a two level game,
1: as you point out, between the federal and the states on this broader issue of content moderation. Now we can talk specifically about child abuse materials on the internet, but the the broader debate is content moderation, and we've got these three different positions that are being contested right now. The one end, at one extreme, it's no moderation at all that the rights of the uploaders, and so this is the Texas and Florida position in the the recent cases that are coming up to the Supreme Court, not with child abuse, but with political speech, but it's the same issue. Then on the other extreme, it's the position of the platforms that while they should have the ability and the liberty to conduct content moderation, it shouldn't be compelled. And then we have the you know the other extreme, which is compelled moderation. And you know, in some sense, you could see this as a species of again compelled. Moderation. It's it's not saying you must moderate, but it's
0: by imposing. But, but if you if you know that people are engaged in uh, grooming kids online, you you got to go in and find it. I think the debate over end to end encryption also shows up here. Yeah. And now they're assuming this stands, and it could. It will make a lot of companies nervous that their Section two hundred and thirty immunity does not work here, and that they're traditional view we're not responsible for what people say on encrypted channels might not work do you think this is a first amendment problem well so the first the first amendment is all around this issue on
1: all three of these positions and it's completely unsettled there are certainly people who speak as if it's,
0: you know, absolutely certain what the First Amendment means, but it's not at it, all. It's- I don't think so. No, because I mean- you, open you, Completely open question. Completely open question. Yeah. Well, you can hold people liable for aiding and abetting, and they can aid and abet with their words. I noticed that net choice, which is like, it's like the id of social media. They sue everybody, all the states take unpopular positions uh, all the time so that the social media companies don't have to take them. They haven't brought that brought a lawsuit, even though they brought lots of lawsuits against lots of states for lots of laws relating to kids. I think they're struggling with this one too. So we'll see. You know, for intellectual consistency, uh, you know, they are clear that they they
1: are advocating for an absolutist First Amendment reading that would arguably give them some cover. If one of their members were, were tagged, I suspect the more respectable members of their backers probably, you know, out of their own self-interest are going to try to get this material Often, will develop state-of-the-art technology to do it.
0: Sure, but they're going to fail, right? They're going to—they're not going to be able to get it all off. It, in the it's,
1: end. Yes. So, it's, is it reasonable? This this will be interpretation of the statute. Is it reasonable? Does it constitute aiding and abetting if it's beyond technological feasibility to prevent? I, it, it seems to me a reasonable thing to expect or a court to expect in determining ultimate liability is you know there's only so much that's technologically feasible, and, and yeah, might get litigated eventually. It's very easy just to pull up the First Amendment if you need it as a backstop and say, "I
0: don't, I don't think it's going there. I don't think they're they're going to win that." And well, what?
1: So First Amendment, they can win on the First Amendment because the First Amendment doesn't necessarily mean that the speech is protected, right? The First Amendment can come into play, and then they can then then there's the second level analysis about whether it's protected speech or unprotected speech because the state arguably could say, "Look, you just don't have." A paramount interest in child abuse materials, and you know that could that that kind of accommodation could be worked at.
0: Yeah, I'm guessing that the state says, "Hey, you have to knowingly uh, aid and abet. What's your problem here?" And the court says, "Yeah, okay, knowingly aid and abet," and then the plaintiffs have the pleasure of saying. So let's explore what you knew. We want to do discovery on all your engineers talking about this. And there's it, that's going to be so ugly for the, the social media platforms. This lie is going to turn out to be a real pain in the neck for Silicon Valley, uh, is my prediction. Absolutely. And and again, what constitutes a red flag? Because you're
1: quite yeah. right, Stuart. There's going to be stuff that's going to be up there. That That's just inevitable.
0: Okay, we said that the government had plenty of authority to deal with Bitcoin miners in Montana, but let's turn to a case unlike the the data mining case where the government not only doesn't have much claim on regulatory authority, they've more or less given it up. EPA announced that the fact that they've been sued for their effort to adopt cybersecurity regulations by, not by regulation, but by memorandum has ultimately defeated their effort and they've withdrawn the memorandum that they used to regulate. This is mainly because a couple of states sued them and they got the Eighth Circuit to issue a stay. But if you listen to this podcast, you know, we've thought that that was the most likely outcome for EPA and that's where they are. The only problem with that is now that they've admitted they don't have that authority. There's no place else they're going to find authority. I predict they're going to have to go and ask for legislation and asking for legislation out of this Congress in particular is not easy, especially given now that it's become Republican states versus the EPA. So this means we're not going to have cybersecurity regulation for water and sewage systems anytime soon. And frankly, we need it pretty badly. So not a great outcome, but likely to be the outcome for at least the next couple of years. All right, Justin, AI regulation. It's pretty much going the same way that water system regulation is going, uh, except that lots more people are saying they want to do it. It's just that nobody can agree on what they want to do. And frankly, the most likely outcome here is we're not going to see anything.
3: Yeah, I think it's a good parallel with other areas of tech regulation. I mean, we could probably go on a whole whole privacy thing for instance, but you know, there's been a bunch of recent reporting about how this, you know, bipartisan consensus on AI is not and I'm doing air quotes here, not what we thought it was and I think to your point that there was not really a complete bipartisan consensus on that issue. I think this is kind of like we can go back further, but going back, you know, six, seven, 10 years, maybe, and talking about a bipartisan consensus to regulate social media, right? Um, And as you know, as this, this show has covered many, many times in depth, that is a really complex topic. There is a ton of divergence, even within the parties about how to approach things like taking down child sexual abuse material, dealing with encryption, talking about monopoly power. So I think there is bipartisan interest. That's still true in the sense that Members are talking about AI, and there's talking points and hearings and this and that. But I think it's not even remotely surprising when you get down to it that there's a lot of disagreement, you know, about underlying issues, whether that's privacy, whether that's what constitutes discrimination with AI, whether that's worrying about the text that's being outputted from ChatGPT or whatever it is. So. It'll be a continued focus area, but I don't find it surprising at all that we're hearing more and more about the the disagreements between the parties and within the parties about what to do. All right.
0: Jeffrey, uh, there's a story in Reuters saying that South Korean firms have gotten a waiver on U.S. export controls of chip gear going to China for their chip fabs, which are very substantial and a major part of the global market. What do you make of this? Is this the administration surrendering to the fact that somebody has to make chips, memory chips these are, in China, and they'd rather have the South Koreans doing it than anybody else? Yeah, I think that's a that's a good read of what's going on.
1: Again, the emphasis has to be, as you said, that all this does is permit Samsung and SK, the two giant Korean chip makers to import US fabrication equipment that is controlled imported into China for their own use and what's coming out of those plants again are going to be are going to be chips now it's not clear that the chips that are coming out of Samsung and SK's factories would have been controlled it's the technology the production technology that's controlled but clearly the US security authorities have either been convinced that this is a secure arrangement that that Samsung and SK notwithstanding being located in China can secure these tools or that simply they were persuaded by South Korea that this was essential and uh, you know we, we have to recall that South Korea is a very important partner with the United States in containing China and there've been a number of high level uh, meetings between the United States and, and China both at the White House level and at the State Department level and who knows what got asked for? And there is a U.S. interest, as you said, Stuart, in the global supply of chips. If these chips are relatively fungible, but suddenly we the effect of the U.S. export controls is to uh, limit the Chinese territorial production by the South Koreans, you know that might inadvertently not only harm our, our South Korean allies, but you know create difficulties. Interesting in the long term whether the US's wish to repatriate chip production is being given back in somewhat by this by this move but in any event yes i think the the united states is demonstrating flexibility but whether it's a flexibility of confidence or flexibility of vulnerability to the importuning of our of our allies isn't necessarily clear at this point all
0: right well let me ask you about one more state effort to regulate social media Not by passing a new law, but by bringing a new lawsuit. Utah has sued TikTok, claiming that the app has a harmful impact on children, that it's basically addictive and has been designed to be addictive, trying to hook users, especially kids, and they want enforcement of discovery Uh, against, if you're from Silicon Valley, discovery is almost as bad as losing. What defenses do you see here that might work against the statute, but might not work against this lawsuit? Might work
1: against the, well, against the statute as opposed to the lawsuit. Yeah. Again, this raises the potential, you know, First Amendment overreach. That's what I would have thought. I agree. That's lurking here. Yeah. It's not clear that Section 230 provides the immunity because this, uh, what's being complained about here is a design feature of TikTok itself, right? It's not TikTok as the conduit of user-generated content, but rather it's TikTok as designing a platform that is by its design addictive of children and the
0: harmful effects that, that flow from that. But I, would, I think the argument m- might be, I mean, I've made fun of this argument in the past that it is a matter of publication is deciding what you're going to serve to your users. And publication is what Section 230 is supposed to say you can't be held liable for. So, this is just Utah saying, we're holding you liable for the publication decisions that you make. So, it sounds like a 230 objection, maybe a First Amendment objection. I think we're going to see that argument. I'm not sure it's very persuasive.
1: Well, I guess, is there user-generated content only or is it user-generated content plus? And if it's user-generated content, plus there is a hook where you could, in fact, lever something that would escape 230, at least in theory, right? Again, we don't have any confidence at saying that because, of course, haven't spoken to that yet. They've dodged the 230 issue last year, but it is there. And, you know, when there, if the debate is, is the 60-minute limit for kids that TikToks you know, says, well, we're breaking the addictive potential here by that mechanism, that's a TikTok design question. The adequacy of that is a TikTok design question and has nothing to do with the particular content. So it is an open question whether the addictive nature, the asserted addictive nature is located in the content or is it located in the platform itself? And I think that's open for discussion.
0: So Jim, now we're on TikTok, there's a story in Politico that suggests that the federal effort to do something about TikTok has actually gotten less organized than it was a year ago. It sounds like there's at least three different camps trying to do things. What's the status of? the effort to really rein in TikTok at the federal level?
2: Well, it's been pending for the entire Biden administration. Uh, Obviously, President Trump started this with his IEPA order and with a CFIUS action. The courts put a complete kibosh on the effort to use the uh, IEPA, the International Economic Emergency Powers Act. But the CFIUS ban or the CFIUS action is still pending and it's sort of a mystery to me why it hasn't closed. TikTok came forward last year with what I thought was a pretty dramatic offer in terms of restructuring its U.S. operations and giving the U.S. government in a national security agreement remarkable control, control going far beyond anything that the government has got with any other company over data flows and management of TikTok's U.S. operations. The government didn't accept that. There was a thought that there was the Restrict Act drafted by Senator Warner, who's very good on tech issues, in my opinion, very savvy, but that foundered. And now there's a possibility that Senator Cantwell will have a bill. It's not written yet. Secretary of Commerce Gina Raimondo sort of gave a somewhat endorsement to Senator Cantwell's efforts, but that's not even drafted yet. And really, it's part of this bigger issue about decoupling and and what to do about China, similar to the story we opened with, or at least related to the story we opened with. And, you know, meanwhile, TikTok is no longer the most downloaded uh, Chinese app in America. I think it's been surpassed by some other apps.
0: Oh, Shein and Temu probably. And
2: Temu, that crazy crazy, crazy, bizarre shopping app. So to me, it's a mystery, honestly, Stuart. You've been close you've been involved in some of these Cyphyus matters, I assume, and may have an insight. People say, oh well, it's on shaky legal ground, but IEPA efforts were on completely inadequate yeah. legal grounds. But I really don't see that the effort is on such shaky ground under Ciphyus and certainly the grinder deal was unwound over data concerns. Yep. The amendments to CFIUS two years ago specifically called out data as an issue of specific concern. So I'm not sure there's a... I, I don't buy that, oh, the legal authority is, is shaky
0: here. I think it's just a fight within the administration unresolved. I agree with you. Yeah. This article actually mentions that DOD has been lobbying for a ban yeah. inside Cepheus, And then the uh, economic team, which usually isn't enthusiastic about widespread yeah. Cepheus relief, has been fighting back on that. And that's created a deadlock. And the restrict that it was meant to break that deadlock, but it got caught in its own yep. set of problems with the GOP, with Republicans saying it doesn't go far enough and it goes too far. And yep. uh, too much power to the government, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, right. Exactly. And, I, you know, I'm frankly, deeply skeptical that if Senator Warner, who's a pretty moderate Democrat, can't win trust yep. across the aisle, having Maria Cantwell say, oh, don't worry, the Republicans will trust me. That's an implausible statement. She might be one of the most liberal members of the, the Senate. And, you know, the fact that she hasn't produced the uh, the act means we're just going to be having this debate right through the presidential campaign.
2: And do you agree with me, Stuart, that the ByteDance or TikTok offer of now, I guess, a year ago was a pretty darn
0: good offer? It had all of the elements that you would expect in a tough ag- agreement, yeah. whether it was Actually, enforceable was probably the question because it was very complicated. And if I were DOD, I might have said, "I, I don't want to spend a hundred yeah. people trying to figure out whether the, this is really being observed or not." Yeah. But I agree that their lawyers basically went through every Siphius agreement signed in the last ten years and pretty much took all of the clauses. All of them, plus some. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I want to turn to a story that isn't much in the papers, but which I think if you're a CISO, you really, really need to follow it. And that's why I asked Tyler to get on the show. We just recently saw the unsealing of a lawsuit brought under the False Claims Act by a former CISO of one of the elements of Penn State in which he basically says, I was at Penn State for years and they occasionally would bring me in to try to help the rest of Penn State come into compliance with the cybersecurity requirements of the uh, Defense Department. And they never got there. And so, when I left, I filed this lawsuit for the United States government saying the government has been defrauded and that this is a violation of the False Claims Act, which is a criminal statute. Um, So, this is potentially a very big deal if people are not following, uh, especially DOD regs, which are very prescriptive. If they're not following them, the prospect, if you're a CISO, you're either going to go to jail or you're going to get rich. Uh, its a, <laughs> I don't know, Tyler, uh, which is it here? Uh, what kind of situation are you in if you're a CISO and you think your company is not complying with the government contract's cybersecurity requirements?
4: Yeah, I think it's a great question, Stuart. And I do think that it creates a tough situation for not only CISOs, but organizations as well, because as kind of you would typically have with whistleblower complaints under the False Claims Act, it really creates an internal friction where organizations might be trying to move towards compliance with the very, very strict DOD cybersecurity requirements. But at the same time, they might have people within essentially planning their next key tam litigation to protect themselves, right? And so it is kind of a tough situation, I think, for everybody involved. This particular case was brought under the Civil False Claims Act, but you could absolutely have some, some criminal liability here as well, potentially in the future. And I think you're right that typically what happens with DOD requirements is the CISO or, or somebody else in the organization certifies that, especially under DOD contracts, we have complied with all of, all of these very detailed requirements. We've conducted a self-assessment. Here's our score. Here's everything we did, that kind of thing. And essentially in this complaint the allegation is that penn state just uploaded a lot of fake documents right that's one of the allegations that they just kind of were trying to check the box and as kind of looking at the government contracts industry on this a lot of people have treated the cybersecurity requirements as you know it's out there but are they really going to come after you probably not right they know it takes a lot of time to come into compliance all of that so yes i think this case absolutely kind of puts people on notice it's the second time that you've had an allegation like this against the government contractor and here it's not against, the first one was against kind of a traditional defense contractor. Here you have it against a university that has, you know, I think the allegation and complaint was 85 different components in tech organizations. They mostly deal with financial assistance, don't normally have these types of national security controlled unclassified information concerns. And so it really is an issue for a lot of them that I would, wouldn't be surprised if many organizations are not following the requirements at this point.
0: So what do you do if you are a CISO or you're CIO or you're in the chain? And somebody says, okay, here's all the paperwork that we have to file. This is sort of like some of the securities laws. You really have some obligation to have somebody tell you, yeah, we've done everything that the law requires here. And maybe you don't have to go back and check it yourself, but you need to be able to say, I have a a signed statement from somebody I was supposed to be able to trust. Telling me that it's
4: okay to sign all this. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. The analogy to the securities laws apps, you could also think of facility secure, security officers, right, for, for kind of classified information and making sure everything's above board. That, yes, an individual now has this concern. and. You could ask kind of what has been done, but I think that there is actually a framework already in place to address these types of issues, and that's kind of the allegation of this complaint in the first place. Is DOD recognizes that it's really hard to comply with a lot of this, and so the current requirement. There are tons of, of proposals to change this in the next couple of years, but the current requirement is just that you self-assess and say, "Look, we're about seventy percent there. We're about eighty percent, and here's our plan of action." Right. And I think the issue is a lot of people just don't want to go down that path of incurring the additional expense, saying that they're not compliant, that kind of thing. And that might be the answer for a lot of CISOs, is essentially saying, look, we just need to be straight with with the government and, and kind of tell them what our current status is. And I think if you compare this case to the earlier one, which was Aerojet Rocketdyne, was was a case settled about a year ago. That was very interesting because Aerojet raised a number of arguments right before trial that essentially said, look, the government knew that we weren't compliant. We disclosed it 20 times, whatever it is, you know, that kind of thing. And so kind of being upfront with where you are is probably the, the appropriate course going forward.
0: And the Justice Department has not picked this case up yet. They can step in and say, we want to litigate this or not. And so far, after Rocketdyne, it looks as though they're
4: they're not ready yet, at least. Yeah, I, I've seen a number of headlines that kind of say, "Here's DOJ's cyber initiative coming to to full fruition." I kind of question that a little bit because it's now been two years since DOJ announced that. They've had two or three cases that deal with personally identifiable information, a separate kind of issue involved in this. They didn't intervene in Rocketdyne. And here, they have not intervened. But the difference is they're not just flat out saying, we can't, we're not going to do it. They've said at this stage, well, we just don't have enough information. We've asked you for an extension. You haven't given it. So we're still considering And
0: they're doing some discovery, right? They've gone to Penn State. Jim? Stuart,
2: just, I may have missed it, but I'm not sure either Tyler or you mentioned what to me is a key bit of a legal Latin here, key he tam." What's significant, in my opinion, is that the whistleblower gets to share in any recovery. The, the whistleblower in Aerojet Rocketdyne went away with, I think, $9 million, which, you know, if you're pissed off at your employer and you think they've been signing this stuff and you have been fighting the fight and you're finally disgusted and you're going to quit, that's a nice little severance package. The life of a whistleblower can be miserable. Yes. The life of a whistleblower can be totally miserable, but... This Fault Claims Act allows individuals
0: when they sue on behalf of the government to share in the recovery. Yeah. And well, this guy did it in a way that was likely to minimize his pain. He kept raising the problems and finally he got frozen out and he got a job someplace else and then he filed. So. Yeah. It's obvious if you have a choice of going to jail or getting rich, you'd really rather get rich. And so we're going to see some of these things filed. And
2: that may change the dynamic inside companies Yes, where previously someone who was saying, we keep signing these certificates and they're not true. That person was consistently told, hey, just
0: shut up and go along to get along. Now that person has another choice. Yeah. I think it's harder to bring the key TAM action if you actually were part of the cover-up.
2: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. But if you were fighting it, as some people do internally, I assume, and I assume inside contractors, there's a dispute over, should we be signing or not? The folks who are saying, no, 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 don't sign, we can't sign, and who get overruled, they become whistleblowers.
4: And I think, Jim, that, that raises the issue that I raised at the outset, is that essentially, if you look at an organization's perspective on this, right? Obviously, you have the CISO, kind of the personal concerns there, but they're now going to be incentivized both for a monetary reason, potentially, but also just self-defense, as Stuart's saying, to raise every single rock and point out every single issue. And look, some of these things, whether they're material or not, can be real disagreements. And that was seen in the the Aerojet case. You had some DoD emails of Discovery that kind of said, look, they could fix this the next day on some of these issues, not everything, right, but some of the issues. And so I do think, you know, more regulation government contractors would always be opposed to typically, but You could see that the the government's been moving towards a third party audit system where some third party comes in and says, look, they're compliant or they're not. And that's the end of it. That might be a better situation than what we have here, where you're trying to freeze out people because you're worried about what they might disclose or or now you're worried about what you're you're attesting to. Right. There is a real big friction coming out of these cases, I think.
0: All right. I want to close with what I think of as tentative good news about artificial intelligence. Jeffrey, Anthropic had a paper that I read at least as saying, hey, you know that explainability problem where you can't tell why the the model is doing what it's doing? We've made some progress in, in small models trying to figure out what's going on in the model's head. Yeah, that's it. I read it the same way,
1: that maybe explainability is more tractable than we once thought it was. I mean, in some sense, I I think a lot of people had just despaired at any kind of meaningful work for explainability. They acknowledge, the, the anthropic paper acknowledges that just looking at whether a single neuron fired or not in creating a particular output doesn't tell us much it's just you know do you see the letter l on a page that doesn't you know really clue you much to its informational content And so, they're extending the range of what they're looking at. They're looking at it, at least to the degree I understand, they're looking at clusters and using actually large language models to kind of discover clusters in a network that might correspond to kind of bits of understanding that then permit us to have some insight about what's going on. I I take it, you know, if the output is, yes, it's a cat just to use the very simple model, uh, well, maybe this enables us to see somewhere in there a recognition of whiskers or tail or pointed ears. And so if we're on, if there is now a new roadmap, if this actually does represent a hopeful potential approach to attaining explainability, that's going to be helpful, particularly as we're seeing the law is increasingly charging an obligation to provide explainability. Now, we see this more in Europe than in the United States, but there's a legal thirst for explainability of outcomes. And so, as the technological frontier moves forward and we get, you know, at least somewhere along the path of of saying, well, at least this region kind of fired the way that we look at the brain, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, the legal
0: standard will drift along in that same way. Oh, we've got a long way to go before that. This is a small, really small AI model. What they did is they said, if we aggregate this stuff, we can start to see what they called features, little little lumps of code or lumps of neurons that that tell us right now, the machine is looking at somebody who's talking law or somebody who's talking nutrition or somebody who has put up a uh, spreadsheet, which could be very important, especially if what you want is for the, model to actually pay more attention to the spreadsheet, then you can actually goose it artificially to look at that and not at some of the hallucinations. So the fact that you can do that and that one of the ways to find these things is to have a big model look at a little model to say, what is that little model thinking? All of this is, as they said, we think there's a possibility that getting to generalizable explainability might be more engineering than science for the first time. And that sounds right. So, you know, who knows whether this will work, but given how many people have said it just won't work, this is really sort of nice to see. All right, let's finish up here. Jeff, Justin, Jim, Tyler, thanks to all of you for joining us. To our audience, send us a comment uh, at cyberlawpodcast at gmail.com or leave us a review. We'd be glad to hear from you. This has been episode 477 of the Cyber Law Podcast. argument might be i mean i've made fun of this argument in the past